I'd like to welcome everyone to this episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, interviews with luminaries in retina. My first guest tonight is none other than Dr. Kirk Paco. So Kirk, retirement, um, you're fully retired now, is that right? Fully retired. I'm still uh, teaching. Um, I uh, uh, go down to the university uh, uh, office. Uh, I'm earmarked uh, several times a month to, to be with the residents and, and uh, uh, I love teaching. It's my life's blood. So I, as long as I got a pulse, I'm gonna do that. But I've uh, retired from clinical practice, which was a tough thing to do. I mean, it's a cliche. But it's it's tough to let go of that, you know. Our if you'd asked me in the fourth grade, what I was going to be when I grew up, I was going to be a doctor, and then for a while I even changed tracks for a little bit. But I cycled back to to medicine, and you know you spend all of your time of memory on a quest to be a doctor, and uh, and then just the concept of letting my medical license expire. Um, and knowing that I'm not, I've, I've walked into the operating room for my last time already is a, a tough thing. Um, How did you know it was the right time? Well, I can tell you, and, I, and I'm happy to share this. Let me tell you the whole s- sequence behind all this. Um, almost four years ago, I was doing a case, a PVR case, and I started getting abdominal pain. And I, I told my uh then fellow, I said, you know, let's, I'm going to cancel the next case. I can go to the emergency room. And long story short is that I thought maybe I had a hot gallbladder, MI, they did a cath, but then they did a CT scan and found I had a liver mass. So I was diagnosed with cholangiocarcinoma. Oh my gosh. And uh, a year later, it was metastatic. So here I am three years, over three years out and uh, my tumors are pretty, a lot of them, most of them just disappeared and, and they've stopped thanks to the, thank God, the, the wonder of immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. So um, everything is stalled. And I asked my oncologist, well, how much longer do I have? And uh, you know, to me, metastatic when I was in medical school and even through practice was, was, was synonymous with the end of the line. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but now he says, you know, you may have years to go. And it's already been three, which by itself is miraculous. So that, uh, you know, you plan for the uh, worst, um, but hope for the best is the cliche. Uh, immunotherapy, despite the wonderment of it, um, was a little tough. I mean, I had a complication a couple months into it where I had a branch artery occlusion in my right eye, which is a way to get the attention of a retinal specialist. Thank God it was a supranasal scotoma not involving the macula. So it was the best place to have it. And um, I have no awareness of it at all. And, and I think I can map it out a little bit on a visual field still, but, but thank God it, it didn't impair me at all. So I continued to practice just fine with that. Um, but this last time, uh, six months ago, I had a, a cascade of problems where I had COVID, was hospitalized with that. I was, was really fatigued. Um, uh, and then I, the fatigue kept getting worse rather than better. And then they felt it was my aortic valve. This all started, John, when I was in high school. And we can actually get into this. Um, 
uh, and cycle back. When I was uh, a senior in high school, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And I was just on a routine chest X-ray getting ready for college applications. And uh, the, then th the then therapy in the, in the late 60s, early 70s was to radiate uh, the hell out of your chest. And so I had 5,000 rads of, of radiation. Uh, and then for the next 50 years, I've dealt with radiation issues, coronary artery disease, hypothyroidism, uh, bundle branch blocks that ultimately ended up with a need for a pacemaker and, and all these things. And the cholangiocarcinoma was direct result of this too, because it hit the left lobe of my liver. And it's well documented 50 years later, after treatment for Hodgkin's disease, you can get cholangiocarcinoma. But uh, the, uh, um, but the, with the, they, the, then I, they thought I was having more trouble with my aortic stenosis and other radiation effect. And uh, so I had a, a TAVR procedure, had a new aortic valve put in. This was about four months ago. Um, and then I was supposed to have this surge of energy, which didn't happen. And I kept getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And then what happened was that the immunotherapy took out my pituitary gland. And I lost all my uh, hormones, including uh, ACTH. So I basically had a cortisol level of zero. People don't have cortisol levels of zero. They usually have something. Yeah. But I had a cortisol level of zero. And I was doing a case and I was just, uh, again, these decisions happen in the middle of surgery, which is, for me as a s surgeon, uh, was an interesting sequence. But um, uh even my fellow was guiding me through helping me stand and, and whatnot. And, and uh, that night I decided to retire because I felt I just couldn't do it. And I didn't have a diagnosis then. But then after I had some, a uh, little bit of prednisone, I felt like a million dollars. And today I feel like I'm 20. I, I've never felt better. I've uh, lost a lot of weight. I've, um, I, I feel great. I feel like I can go see a hundred patients tomorrow. Um, but I looked at it, John, like uh, God saying, you know, Kirk, you've had a great career. You don't need to do this. I may not give you uh, a recovery again the next time. Why don't you use this to get things together and, and, uh, and enjoy things that uh, for the past 50 years, I've kind of um, deprioritized, which is this this entity called family. And uh, so I am enjoying to know in my four grandchildren. Um, uh, the, the last one is a one-year-old baby girl who's the most beautiful little angel on the face of the earth. And uh, uh, so I'm having great fun with her. We're doing the classic downsizing. We're moving to a new home next month. And uh, so that plus, plus the cool thing is I've, I've signed up for, I still have about five meetings I'm signed up for to attend. Um, I attended the Stanford course, six hour course on optic nerve drusen a couple of weeks ago. Why? Because I love it. <laughs> and um, the, my, my career goal was to, and we can talk about this too, uh, was to write a paper. I've never written a paper with one of the most influential people in my my life was Mort Goldberg was my chairman. So I have a paper that that the masthead says Paco and Goldberg. And uh, that was just published a couple weeks ago. And the whole paper was written, submitted and uh, hit publication 
after retirement. So I've, I've been more academically productive than I have uh, in a long time too. If, if retirement means you should do things that you want to do, that I'm doing things I want to do. And uh, with, with, this, with the soul thing is, I'd still love to have my hands on a protractor. Yeah. But uh, I've, I've, had it, I've had it for several thousand times, so I don't need to do more. You know, it's funny because how many times have we seen you at a meeting in the last four years and just not known this, you know, yeah. and, and yet you bring so much energy and enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the things I think about when I think about you, Kirk, are, are just passion and enthusiasm and then a passion for teaching. So where did you get those things? I know your dad was a photographer and I can understand how that kind of led you into ophthalmology, but who, how did you get instilled with such just a love of what you, what you do? It had to have started when you were younger. You, you don't just become this way. You, you're, you are this way from the beginning. You know, I, I think we can, we're the, 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 uh, the result of, not only genetics, but upbringing. And uh, of course you point to your parents, right? My mother instilled in me um, a drive to be something different and to be a leader. All of us in, in, as doctors, particularly going into ophthalmology, we're smart people, right? Top of the class. And uh, so, you know, being uh, you know, all A's and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I was class president for four years in a row. And uh, uh, I loved uh, being in, uh, uh, in the role of, of directing things and, uh, uh, and working with other people in that capacity. And teaching uh, by and large kind of grows out of that kind of a pursuit. So um, uh, I think uh, I've always loved uh, doing that. I, I really, point to this, the start of this passion in me. And I don't know that my career would have followed the same path without uh, the, the uh, thing that happened to me. And that was my quest for ophthalmology in, in the beginning. When I was looking for a residency program, that was the first year of the match. Computers were new. Apple started that year. And uh, uh, people were very skeptical of this thing called a computerized match. It, it didn't make a lot of sense to us as to how you could trust a computer to decide where you were going to go. And, and we just didn't get it that, yeah, it does work out that you're going to match to the highest program that gives you an offer, but we did, didn't realize that. So I applied to 14 programs, which is a whole lot less than uh, uh, people apply to now. Uh, my number one choice was the University of Illinois. I really uh, thought Chicago was a great city. The program was great. And that, and that was the glory days of the Ioneer Infirmary in Chicago back then with some absolute giants in the field uh, who were there. And uh, uh, I uh, anxiously opened up that letter to see what the computer uh, did for me. And you read that first sentence, it says, we're sorry to inform you that you've received no offers. So I didn't match. And uh, I can tell you a little bit about why. And I learned about why I really blew it uh, on that quest because I was a, a great uh, college uh, student. Uh, again, uh, 
you know, leadership roles in student council. And uh, I was a drama major, which actually was the, the thing that people found too much out of the box uh, for me, uh, for, for the, the, the people that they're looking for. There was a, uh, uh, an article that was written about me at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I was in the cover of the Sunday magazine um, uh, for these dramatic things that I would do um, in, uh, in medical school. And I added that uh, newspaper, I can tell a bit more about that in, in a moment, but I, I added that to the applications and uh, people thought that this was just too weird. Um, so I didn't match anywhere. Um, but I found out within hours of, of uh, getting that letter uh, from a, one of the interns who was pushing me to help me get through this uh, disappointment, um, that the University of Illinois only matched seven out of their eight spots and they still had a spot. And the reason that they had it is they only ranked eight people. Again, just to show you the people didn't know how to work the match uh, in that first time. Um, so there was an extra spot and they asked me to, to come up and interview again. So I flew back up and uh, uh, I met with several of the faculty again. And I remember sitting in the, uh, like it was yesterday, I remember sitting in Mort Goldberg's office and Mort told me what he was looking for in residence. It wasn't good enough for him to train really great eye doctors. That was just a given. What he wanted is he wanted to train people that would actually make a difference in their career. And he, he called it his ripple effect, uh, where he wanted to train people who contributed and influenced other people, particularly through teaching, publishing, presenting. And those people would then go out and train other people who trained other people who trained other people. Uh, Mort told me the story that how he got on that ripple effect is that uh, when he was a medical student, he met with DeBakey, the guy who invented coronary, uh, coronary bypass surgery. And DeBakey told the then medical student, Mort Colbert, that, uh, you know, look at how many people he's influenced, millions, because of the surgery that he invented. Well, I was desperate to get this spot. And um, there's a great Yiddish term called chutzpah. So I had chutzpah at that moment. I, I, as a medical student, looked Mort Goldberg in the eye and I says, Dr. Goldberg, all I need is the chance. You give me this chance and I will show you what I can do. And 10 years from now, you and I are gonna have dinner and we're gonna decide whether or not I made good on it. And he just pauses and looks at me and smiles and he says, okay. And half hour later, they gave me the spot. And uh, before I caught a cab back to uh, O'Hare on my way back to St. Louis, I sat on the uh, bus, bus station across the street on Taylor Street and it was starting to snow. It was almost like a, a scene out of some Spielberg movie, um, like Tom Hanks was sitting there. But it, I, I sat there in the snow watching the infirmary across the street, imagining me walking through those doors in another year and knowing that I had a promise I had to make good on and a dinner that I was going to have to go for 10 years later. And uh, that launched me into, uh, you know, making good on a promise. And I think that, you know, maybe my career would have worked out the same way if I'd have got in, but it, it drove me. 
And uh, when I got to the infirmary, I, I, I knew I was the guy who didn't match. And, uh, uh, and I had to make good on it. We did have that dinner. And uh, uh, two years ago, when, when I got that lovely award from the ASRS, uh, Mort called me and he says, yeah, you made it. You, you made good on the promise is all he said. You know, you took a break between college and, and medical school, right? And, and went out to New York and did some acting and directing. It was actually in the middle of college. And uh, I was in New York at the American College of Dramatic Arts. Great uh, program. Spencer Tracy graduated from there. Um, a lot of great names. I was thinking of, of going into it as a field. I was a directing major in, in college as part of the drama program. And uh, again, it kind of shows you the mind of me. I got to be in, in a, a leadership role. And I, I, I loved uh, directing. I just absolutely adored it and uh, uh, did several big productions in college. And when you're in college and, and summer stock and things that I did, I'm, I was a big guy back then. And, uh, you know, so what are the roles? I played character roles. I wasn't the ingenue uh, leading man type of thing. Uh, so I had fun uh, roles, but I played the old guy a lot of times. And in, in reality, unless you're Dustin Hoffman, in, in real life, they're going to hire a 70-year-old person for a role that's 70 years old. They're not going to hire a 20-year-old kid. In my time in New York really kind of brought me to my senses. The time I spent there was absolutely against my parents' desires. They thought I'd gone crazy. And uh, because they knew I, I had the abilities to, to make it as a, a physician um, and they didn't understand. I mean, they, they let me uh, do the drama gig uh, while I was uh, uh, in, in college, but they didn't expect me to do it as a career. Um, and, and I, uh, realized that uh, it wasn't for me. And, and yet, you know, knowledge is a, is a great thing. There's never anything that you learn that you, you can't value from. And I look at my career and my teaching style, uh, my, my style at meetings. And I mean, that's my drama background. And uh, so I wouldn't have done it any differently. Um, and uh, even the fact that that kept me the first cycle of getting easily into an ophthalmology spot, I wouldn't have done it any differently either. It was a perfect way for me to get, get my, uh, my, uh, you know, my, my career set out. Now your son, Bob is a director um, and works in the, in the film industry. Do you think some of that rubbed off on him? Absolutely. And, and more from my brother, I have one brother who uh, just died last year, but uh, my brother is a graphics artist and uh, my, my father was a photographer. So uh, I grew up in, in that type of uh, environment. And uh, my, my brother was a brilliant graphics artist and he also did made films in commercials and in industrial films and things. And when my uh, son was uh, growing, my son is now 42 years old, but uh, when he was, from eight to 10, he would uh, spend uh, several weeks visiting with my mother and my brother back in Toledo, Ohio. And uh, they would make a movie. Um, and they would, they, they would do a parody of a movie that was out uh, at that time. Uh, it was Indiana Paco in the Temple of the Dinosaur, uh, uh, small instead of big, things like that. And so he had this collection of wonderful movies that they made with my brother. Uh, 
my, my son idolized his uncle. And uh, they did it very professionally. They storyboarded it out. Uh, they wrote a script. Uh, they, they, they had scene shots. They did just that for a cinematographer. This is the, the medium shot, uh, the wide shot, and they did the whole thing. So he really got the bug uh, back then. So again, you ask me when I was his age, what I was going to be, I was going to be a doctor. You ask my son what he was going to be. He was going to be like his uncle. And in fact, he came home one day with a project that, what, what are you going to be? And he had a, a, a figure that he drew that looked exactly like my brother. And he was going to be an artist and, and make films. And that's what he's doing. So I live vicariously through my son. Uh, and uh, um, so I have a, a great fun still uh, doing it with uh, watching his career go. So, you know, your, your, your fingerprints, your DNA is all over ASRS, which is just this huge inclusive society from the naming, you know, you were an advocate behind changing the name from Vitreous Society. What was the importance behind switching that name from Vitreous Society to ASRS? When I joined the, the Vitreous Society, uh, I did it uh, because Andy Packer, friend of mine was then president and uh and and he saw in me my drive that i'd be a good person to be on the board so he kind of handpicked me to be on the board and put me on a committee and when i was there um i could see the 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 things that that society had the potential to be um you know the other societies like the retina society and the macula society or the aos um uh they were restricted and you had to prove your worth in order to get into them uh, through publications and be voted in. And uh, the, the founders, uh, Jerry Bovino, Alan Byrne and Roy Levitt were brilliant in, in the fact that they made it an open society. And it really stands out among all subspecialty societies in ophthalmology uh, in that way. Uh, it to this day. So if you've done a, a fellowship and your life is about retina, you're welcomed. And you could get up and present. Uh, and you didn't, even if it's a crazy idea, uh, you, you could, uh, you were welcomed. And I thought that was brilliant. And uh, I had thoughts of uh, doing so much more than just the meeting. Um, the website was just starting. Um, I thought there was all sorts of things you could do with it. Uh, create a, a museum uh, for the history, uh, to create a, a fellows outlet, uh, to do, uh, get into, involved with uh, 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 coding, to get involved with uh, uh, arguing your, your needs in Washington, okay? Uh, now the Academy was doing that uh, for us too, but you know, the Academy has a lot on their plate and we had our own special needs. So I think we needed a society to do it. And it was a natural that the Vitreous Society be there. But the Vitreous Society, when I was uh, on another committee, kind of on my way up, uh, this is right before I was the vice president and then the president, uh, I was uh, on the AMA council. And the, the Vitreous Society had a seat on the council right with the academy. Um, and uh, in the ASCRS, there were three I groups there. And when I introduced myself, um, everybody laughed because of the Vitreous Society. People were joking in the room, like, well, what, are you get an eyelash society too? 
And I thought there's no way that we're going to be taken seriously in Washington if we didn't have the name retina in there someplace. And the, the uh, uh, vitreous just did, did, couldn't be there. Um, now, the people who founded the vitreous society had certainly a, a lot of emotional ties to it. And I would have been the same way had I been the one who started that society. And some young uh, uh, guy who wants to change everything uh, steps to the plane and says, well, first thing I'm going to do is change the name. Um, I, I said, what are you talking about? And, and the, 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 uh, that path to change the name was not easy. And there was a lot uh, of heavy duty discussions. They, they were really, really intense um, uh, things. And, and uh, the, the decision to, to finally put it over the, the um, finish line was, was done by, by George Williams. Um, I was in my hotel room the night before the board meeting. And I had a whiteboard in my room. And I had the, uh, a line down the center. And I had yes votes and no votes. And I had all the people named there as well. I thought how people were going to vote. And it was basically a tie. Um, and there were about three people that I didn't know how they were going to vote. Um, but there were other people that for sure I knew they weren't going to vote. And uh, George went down to, and this was about two in the morning because everybody was up still. Uh, George went down to the, uh, uh, the founder's uh, uh, suite and uh, uh, brokered some compromises and some other things like trying to pass uh, Bill HR 152, right? So they agreed to, 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 uh, to put it across the finish line if I kind of relaxed on some other things, which interestingly all kind of changed anyway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at that point in history, uh, it, it, it changed. And the person who I, I uh, all through the, the battle scars that I had with the Vitreous Society, the, the, the one person who was always against me but still had a very, what I felt was a very rational way of thinking and always in the end spoke up and gave me a chance and said, all right, well, let's let Kirk go with this for a year and, and maybe it'll work and let's just see. And, uh, uh, and that's Jerry Bovino. And Jerry was the, the, uh, the voice that uh, ultimately made all those things happen, including the name change. And Jerry is the guy who really started the Vitreous Society with Alan and with, uh, uh, with Roy. But he was the main driving force and, and really was the main driving force that, that made that happen too. And look what happened. I mean, uh, we're, we're there, we're, we're there in Washington. Look at, um, I, I can't help but smile every time I see an email blast from the society um, and all of the, the amazing things that it does. You know, it's the economies of scale. You know, you can't go out and build an expressway yourself, but you can give some, some money in your taxes that together with a, f a few other 100,000 people the, or a million people, that expressway gets made. And the same thing here. You know, people are busy. They don't have the time to do all this. But we've got a great society uh, fighting for us now. And, and not only did they put on a great meeting uh, and still give that voice for the little, uh, the little person uh, 
who doesn't really live and breathe publishing, but still wants to, to call a, a meeting their own. Um, but they do so much more too. And they're doing more and more. I just, I, I just, it's, it's, it's thrilling to me to see that. You know, I, I think on your watch and under your guidance, the PAT survey was developed. What was the thought process behind why we needed a PAT survey? And did you envision it becoming what it's become? PAT survey was just kind of brainstorming one day. And um, uh, there was something somewhat similar that the ASCRS had uh, going on too. It was just as a, um, but it wasn't something that they planned to do on a yearly basis. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you pick up an idea, you, you morph it into something else and you, you pick the good parts of it and you add to it and you evolve uh, and you come up with a, a pretty clever thing. And, uh, and the, the idea to do trends, uh, to do it every year and to, to, to see how things change over the years and then to branch it out internationally to see how regionally it changed and, and, and whatnot. Um, you know, originally, uh, so many of these things, everything costs money, right? So that was, I had to, to get that through the board because it, was, uh, it wasn't uh, instantly uh, self-sufficient uh, funding. Uh, but we were able to get some corporate support for it. And the, the corporations were interested in the data too. You know, the, the um, accurate marketing data is worth its weight in gold. And uh, if, if uh, and I always felt... You know, when that first meeting uh, in Rome happened, and uh, you know, I felt very strongly that we should have an exhibition floor, and uh, and the, the Vitreous Society never had corporate people in, in their in their meetings. Uh, they took some money uh, in support, but they didn't uh, allow them to to put up anything. There was no booths or anything like that. And I felt that that we're all the same people. We 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 make a living taking care of eye disease. And we can't do what we do without corporate ophthalmology. But you just need to do it in, in understanding that you want to be your ideas be bought off. And the feds got involved with that too. But, uh, but if, if you're going to have an instrument in your hand, it, pretty good if, if maybe a doctor was involved with the development of that. Or if a doctor was the one that brought it to the company and says, this is a need that we have, an unmet need, and let's solve this. Um, and I don't have uh, an electrical engineering background, but you guys have that resource. So let's work together. Okay. There's, and there's also lots of education that can happen on an exhibit floor. Uh, you know, you walk around and you see things, you compare things. I felt we needed to do that. And, and the PAT survey was just a way to, uh, uh, to a tool uh, to make that happen or to add to it. And you gotta take it for a grain of salt because you're just asking people's idea uh, of how, what they've done. And you know, the numbers are uh, a large part inaccurate on, on things, but, but it's still, if you, as long as you consider it for what it is, um, uh, it, it's, it's still a great resource. And again, it's so thrilling to me personally uh, to see that when I, it's referenced in, in a, a peer-reviewed journal, like reference number 62 is the PAT survey, or you see it uh, presented in a, a courtroom um, to, uh, for liability arguments and things, which is not designed to do, but still people use that. And uh, um, 
a lot of the things that, that I did, uh, again, that was my idea, but uh, I needed, uh, um, you know, a partner in crime. And that's where uh, I turned to John Pollock. And I said, John, what, let's, let's work on this. And, and he kind of got the concept pretty quick. And so John and I did it that first year and pulled all-nighters uh, in this little research office I had in our, our private room, uh, smoking cigars, uh, you know, three in the morning, listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire. I can't listen to any Earth, Wind, and Fire song without uh, uh, thinking about the pad survey. <laughs> and then we hand brought all these things that we printed ourselves uh, and dry mounted and, and trucked them all over to Rome and put them up. And it was an instant hit. Everybody loved it. And uh, um, and then, but to see how that's evolved and, and my modus operandi is to to take something get an idea show people what the, it could be but then turn it over to someone who hopefully is going to be smarter than me anyway and can add to it and that's what john did to the pad survey i was with the pad survey with john for about uh, four years maybe and then john uh, ran with it and then he turned it over to someone else and then made it even uh, even better and the same thing with uh, Retina Times Magazine. I did it completely uh, page by page for the first uh, couple issues and then turned it over to other people who just made it spectacular. Such a, It's such a beautiful publication. You know, we have journals and we have throwaway journals and we have everything. This is like, it, it's like a, a book of art. It's so well done and well published. The images are beautiful. What was the nidus behind Retina Times? Well, I was... I had a lot of things on my plate. This was one of the things I did as president of the society. And uh, um, I, uh, some, I just couldn't do everything. The, the, the website was, was a battle to, to get uh, in a little bit sharper shape. But, um, but the, we had a newsletter that the society published uh, that was just, uh, it, it was, I think there was, we have some old copies of it that were mimeographed. I don't know if you're old enough to know that that purple color to the papers um, and the smell to the, the ink. Um, but we had these Xerox things were just stapled and just said the Vitreous Society newsletter. And I, I had, hadn't gotten one out for several months because I was just so busy doing other stuff. I mean, basically I had this research office where it started in 1999 and, 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 I was accused by one of the board members of being psychotic, <laughs> uh, which one of the other adjectives that they threw uh, threw my way, which maybe was not too far from the truth. But I had a, a, a bed in my uh, uh, research office and uh, I was there 24 seven working on stuff. I decided I thought I better get a newsletter out. But then I thought, this is, you know, one of the things on my list that this needed is to, for, uh, as a society, we needed our own journal. And I wanted a peer-reviewed journal, okay, which I knew we were going to get later on, which I'm thrilled to see that that happened too. But uh, I researched it and, and realized that getting a peer-reviewed journal is a big process. And I thought, well, let me, how about a non-peer-reviewed one? Let's get a start with this. So um, I started it out and I, uh, 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 and again, used my background in uh, design uh, with a lot of help and from ideas from my brother on how to do it. I learned some softwares on how to, to do publishing uh, softwares uh, to get it done. So I, I designed the, the first three issues 
um, completely and basically wrote most of the articles. Um, and uh, Brett Foxman, um, I uh, asked to be the, the editor with me and uh, I asked Brett to be the, the editor in chief thinking that I could hide behind that and people wouldn't recognize that it was me doing this. <laughs> um, and the, when the first issue came out, um, the, uh, uh, it was passed around and it was looked nothing like the newsletter that, uh, that we had before. And Alan Verne, one of the founders, after, I made, after Brett made the presentation and I was just quiet sitting there. The next thing on the agenda was uh, the Retina Times magazine. And uh, uh, this was truly one thing that I didn't present to the board. And I just did. And it's that old cliche, you can ask for forgiveness rather than permission. In this one, I knew if I asked to do it, it wouldn't have got done. And, and maybe there were several other things that they would accuse I did that way anyway, but this is truly when I would admit that I, I didn't ask anybody, I did it uh, secretly. And uh, uh, when Brett was done with his presentation, everybody was kind of quiet. And Alan uh, lifts up the copy of it and, he's, and he stands up holding it like this. And he says, you know what? I'm sorry, Dr. Foxman, but this stinks of Kirk Paco. <laughs> And I spoke up and I said, hey, can you elaborate on that? Are you, do you mean like lilacs? Is, is that how you, just exactly what do you mean stinks? And then it blew up into a big argument based on cost. Now I had researched it. I had, I, I went with Karen Baranek, who is my, one of my loves of my life and, and uh, my little sister. Um, and we went to the, uh, at the exhibition floor at the Academy with about four or five months before I did this. Uh, we went to every single retinal uh, uh, company around and we were selling ads. And I had an ad card, very professional. I had a prospectus uh, printed up on just what it was gonna be. We did a mock-up of what the uh, magazine was gonna look like and uh, uh, and we, uh, and we got funding. Did we put it over the finish line uh, on the first issue? No, <laughs> which is again, why they wanted to kill me. But, uh, um, and now it's, it's more than um, you know, self-sufficient. It's a revenue stream as part of the, as a resource, but it, it's, not, it's not designed to be a, a you know, money maker. That's not why we do it. We do it for the content, but, uh, uh, but that's the story that kind of behind it. And again, I, I'm so thrilled uh, to pick up an issue of it each time because it has gotten so much better. And uh, um, some of the ideas I had of, you know, I had a, a humor page and cartoons and crossword puzzles and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's cute for maybe the first time, but to get some interest off, but that doesn't need to be there. And then the, the other things that they do, it's another great way to get other people involved in it. You know, subsection editors and, and, uh, and people and people that stay current. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's great to see that. I guess my modus operandi, get get there, uh, if it, and if and if it works and it, it has some legs to it, then then give it to other people and see what they can do with it because they're going to do it better than than what I thought in the in the first place. Well, 
want to thank you for listening to On the Shoulders of Giants interviews with Luminaries and Retina. This is the end of part one of our interview with Dr. Kirk Paco.